loving bad behavior, join our Patreon page. You'll get access to bonus episodes, juicy behind-the-scenes content, live Q&As, and much more. We'll see you there. We all misbehave sometimes. Wanna change the world, indulge in some bad Hello and welcome back to Bad Behaviour. I'm Rosalind. And I'm Nicola. So, Nikki, I'd love to ask you how you've been bad this week. Well, my being bad is quite a sweet one, actually, so get ready for this. It's about the power of sisterhood, if you will. I have two younger sisters. I'm an older si- the oldest sibling, if you can believe it. I feel like I do not exhibit many older sibling vibes in that I... You 100% do. Really? Yes. I always think of myself as quite chaotic and like a bit messy and not like together enough to be an older sibling. Um you yeah, but okay. No, you you definitely have older sister vibes to me. That makes me happy. I <laughs> am currently in quarantine. I've moved back to our family home. So I'm with my two younger sisters and we're living together for the first time in a long time and I'm happy to report that is actually the best thing ever and it's going so well. We have a long history of like quite intense fights, you know, like classic sibling fights. They are the only people in the world who can like absolutely make me want to commit you know, murder. They know your buttons and they push them. Oh, wow. Boy, they do. But being back living with them and spending a lot of time with them, practically all my time, I don't have any other friends. They are my entire social group right now. So it has definitely given pause for me to reflect on their role in my life. And I've just kind of been thinking about how it's so cool to be able to watch your sisters grow and evolve and also to be able to like work with them as well. I write a lot with my sisters and we do a lot of creative stuff together. And so the way that I've been bad is by connecting with my siblings. (laughs) (laughs) That's so lovely. I thought it was a cute reflection to share because, yeah, I truly did not expect it to go as smoothly. I thought that I would be like, you know, ready to quit on like day two because they would have annoyed me so much. But yeah, I think a lot of people who know me know that like my sisters are pretty central to everything that I do in my life. They hold a lot of the same values that I do and low-key I would die for them. Wow, this is getting a bit soppy. Can you Are you allowed to be you... soppy when you talk about your siblings? Surely. Okay. They're family. Okay. I mean I'm losing some of my cred. They're gonna listen to this and be like, ugh, gross, and then not want to be my friend. Quickly say something mean. <laughs> I hate you. Anyways, with that in mind, like I've kind of been looking around at like how other people are with their siblings as well and how like you truly believe that your relationship with your siblings is completely the norm until you talk to someone else and then you realise that it's not and it's absolutely insane because like the two of us I've spoken to you about this a lot like I speak to my sisters every day we know everything about each other that's not how you are with your sister at all right no not really I mean I love her dearly but I hear you talk about sisterhood and you know your relationship with them and it's kind of interesting to me because I still have absolute unconditional love 
for my sister, but we've definitely had a tumultuous relationship through our teen years and, <laughs> and all of that. I think it's so beautiful how you see your relationship to them, especially as an older sister. I'm the youngest. I am the baby. And so I feel like my siblings think that I got away with murder. And you definitely did. Don't even try to deny it. The younger siblings get away with so much. It's ridiculous. I was always taller than my sister. People always thought I was the older one and my sister liked it that way. And so often I would be the older sister. She liked that people thought she was young. Until she was like 25, people thought she was 17. <laughs> Damn. So you kind of flipped that thing on its head. So she got all the all the younger sister benefits then. She would not say so. No. I wrote a song about her once called Captain and the last chorus, she flips because she hates the narrative. <laughs> so it goes, um, you were the captain. You got the swing. I had to wait because I was the younger sister, basically. And she's like, no, <laughs> you were the younger one. You always got the swing. I can't believe you would say that. So every time I perform it, I can hear her singing loudly. <laughs> That's kind of cute. I love having these conversations with people. I think siblings are such an integral part of so many people's lives. Shout out to Jasmine, Dinica, Edward and Isabella. Oh, that's very cute. Shouting out our siblings. What a good idea. All four of them are mine. <laughs> Don't you dare claim them after my, my sisters after I've just spent the last 10 minutes, you know, creating this ode to them. <laughs> so this was all to say that our guest this week has co-founded this incredible platform with her younger sister. We're talking to Marley Silva. Yes. Surprise. Just kidding. <laughs> you already were aware of that. So let's get into it. Yama. My name is Marley Silva. I am a 24-year-old Gamilaroi and Dungadi woman and the co-founder of Titters for Titters. So titter is an Aboriginal slang word that means sister. So it essentially translates as sisters for sisters. And it's something my sister and I started in 2018, the back end of 2018, which feels like a million years ago now, but it really wasn't that long ago. It was originally just an Instagram page that we wanted to have a place online on social media that championed Aboriginal women in all different areas who were succeeding and killing it that we knew about, but a lot of other people didn't. And we didn't see them being celebrated anywhere in mainstream media. And we wanted to make sure that the next generation of girls who were just like us could grow up and have people to look up to that weren't athletes because that's kind of all we saw growing up you know my sister and I both wanted to be Kathy Freeman growing up not because either of us could run to save our lives but because she was the example of indigenous female success that we saw and so we wanted to expand that and really the intentions were for us to kind of have this as a fun little side hobby so we're posting every day and feeling pretty good about ourselves and our community. But it seemed that there's a lot more people who are interested in doing the same thing, which is very, very cool. So now we have over 30,000 followers across our social media channels. I have a podcast with the Mamma Mia Network of the same name where I sit down and have conversations kind of like this with Indigenous women who are killing it in all different fields. And I just finished my debut novel, which is called My Titter, My Sister, which will be out later this year, which similarly 
regularly captures different stories of everyday Aboriginal women. The youngest girl I interviewed was 15 and the oldest was in her 80s. So it's really positive, happy collection of stories that I hope will continue inspiring the next generation, showing a lot of Indigenous women across the country that they have the capability to do anything and showing non-Indigenous Australia how diverse the Indigenous female experience is, how exciting it is, and essentially encouraging everyone to be paying attention because there's a lot of amazing stuff happening. And I think we exemplify what the future of Australia can be. That's so much work and such an incredible group of achievements. And can you tell us a bit about what a platform like Titters for Titters would have meant to you growing up? My sister and I have spoken about this quite a bit. And what we struggled with, particularly in high school, was feeling alone. As the only two Aboriginal identifying kids at our school at the time, it was kind of her and I against the world in a lot of ways. We grew up and still live in Cronulla, which unfortunately is famous for race riots. It is a very, very strong white Anglo-Saxon community. It's rare to see any kind of brown person. I mean, it's gotten better over the last kind of decade, mostly because... There's like kind of a bigger Pacific Islander community growing, I think, which is good. But for the most part, yeah, for us growing up, very, very white. And therefore, the school environment was not particularly great, being different in any ways hard in high school. And we just didn't feel like we had anyone on our side in the school environment. And just in the few opportunities that we had to connect with kids at other schools at you know different opportunities that were there for Indigenous students we used to come away from those sorts of days and be like oh my god I just want to be with them all the time and I wish I was at a school when it was all just blackfellas and things like that and I think if we'd had a community like this online or just something a bit more accessible like what Titters for Titters is it would have just been nice to be able to connect with like-minded people people who are going through the same things and also just being reminded that there is another side of it, that there is a light at the end of the tunnel and that it is normal to go through. I think both my sister and I have talked about how we felt like there was something wrong with us. That was why, you know, I guess when you're treated particular ways and face certain things, you think it's it's completely your fault. You've done something wrong when really, in reality, it was just racism. <laughs> so yeah, we really would have benefited from this. And I think that's The greatest honour in doing it is being able to connect with young girls who, I mean, quite often send messages just to say thanks. I see myself in them a lot and I've actually, earlier this year, was up on the Gold Coast for the NRL Indigenous All-Stars match. My sister is a touch footballer and played the curtain raiser for the game, which was really cool. And I was just sitting in the stands and I got a tap on the shoulder and I turned around and there was three young girls standing there and they asked me, are you Marley from Titters for Titters? And I nearly died. They asked for a photo with me and were just like, thank you so much. Like, we love Titters for Titters, like blah, 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 all this stuff. And I was like, thank you so much. Like trying to rush the end of the conversation, not because I didn't want to talk to them, but because I was like going to ball. They walked away and I just lost it. My mum was sitting like right next to me when it happened and she knew I was going to cry and she's like are you okay and I was like put my sunglasses on even though the sun had just set because I was just like tears streaming down it was such an incredible moment one of those like weird full circle things because yeah like I just couldn't believe that happened and because when you do stuff online you kind of forget that it's real people that you're talking to that really grounded it in a real thing and making an impact so I'm so thankful for that and it's sort of surreal but it's really nice to know that 
it's a nice, happy thing in someone's Instagram feed. (laughs) That's so powerful. And how incredible that you've found like this wonderful thing that you get to do with your life as well. It sounds like you're really passionate about it. Did you always know that you wanted to do something like this, move into activism? I mean, it's weird because I am quite often called an activist and things like that, but I've never felt comfortable with the label because I think that as an Indigenous person in this country, your birth is politicised, your existence is politicised, and from the get-go, any opinion you have on anything is political because you're Aboriginal. So I never I never wanted to be an activist. I was always going to work for Aboriginal community, though. From the second I left school, I was just really focusing on how I could give back because as much as, you know, socially it was really crappy. Where I grew up, I come from privilege I'm in an economic sense, ironically because my dad was a professional athlete, so fits into that Indigenous success stereotype. Very nicely. What I've come from in a home environment, they're very supportive. I could do whatever I wanted and I made sure that it was driven to giving other young people in particular opportunities like what I was afforded. So from 18 was volunteering for nonprofits. Then I worked in the nonprofit sector for an Aboriginal charity for a few years, did a lot of leadership stuff, trying to upskill myself. It sort of just naturally progressed into doing something on my own because I'd been given the tools to sort of realize that I had the capability to do it. I guess like I never thought it would be something that is kind of a career now, which is weird because first and foremost, I'm a writer. Like that's what I was getting paid to do in a kind of weird way as a consultant before I took this on full time. And again, I didn't even think that would ever pay the bills, (laughs) but I knew I'd figure it out and I knew I'd be happy as long as I was doing something that was positively contributing to the Aboriginal communities. I wanted to talk a little bit about sisterhood and like how you and your sister have created this incredible platform. Could you tell us a little bit about your sister and what it's like working with her? She's a pain in the bottom, isn't she? No, Um, (laughs) she's sometimes, but every little sister is, I guess. A big part of my desire for us to do this together, because I mean, Keely will tell you that this was very much my brainchild. Yeah, it's very much like it's my child and her niece, because I sort of came up with the idea and I didn't want to do it on my own. Not because I didn't think I could do it on my own, but because I thought it was really important to include Keely in it. It's in the name, right? Sisters for Sisters. It would be ridiculous not to have my sister involved. And we are a kind of perfect example of the nature versus nurture thing because as much as we grew up in the same environment, we're very, very different people. Everyone always says we sound the same and have the same mannerisms, but (laughs) we're very different people. And our experiences with our identity are very different. Those experiences in high school that I spoke of turned me into someone who was quite angry and kind of looked at the people who were awful to me as the enemy. And I needed to step away from them and whatever. But for Keely, she felt really really awful about herself and for a long time she didn't want to tell people she was Aboriginal because of the way that she'd been treated and she felt like being Aboriginal was a bad thing because of what she'd experienced and I was the opposite. I was like, being Aboriginal is the best thing in the world. You guys suck. (laughs) So for me, it was this was me bringing her back in and helping us kind of meet in the middle a bit and she's helped me come down from being this I hate everyone sort of person (laughs) not that I was like that you know two years ago but there was a time as a teenager when I was definitely like that and she's come to be louder and prouder and she said to me that it's helped her find her voice whereas I've never been able to shut up 
Yeah, so it's been a really interesting and kind of complex and challenging at times experience for our relationship. People who are familiar with Titters or have followed it for a long time will notice that I am more at the forefront. I'm the one who kind of talks at things and do most of the events and stuff. That's mostly because that's my bread and butter and she doesn't want to do it. But it's also about our separate journeys and relationships with the whole kind of entity that it is now. We're still kind of like learning together through it, but it's been really nice to experience particular things together. And it's definitely brought us closer in a lot of ways. You know, it was probably one of the most special things was to be nominated jointly for the Australian Human Rights Young Person of the Year Award last year, which was wild. To go to that together and kind of reflect on the year that we'd had. And even though we didn't win, which was fine, we lost to my beloved friend Vanessa Turnbull Roberts, which is fine. <laughs> um, and she definitely deserved it. Going through that whole thing and we were sitting next to Dr. June Oscar, who is the commissioner for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander. People who I've interviewed on my podcast and I just love so much. She's incredible. Yeah, being able to have the conversation with her and her like just sharing wisdom over our lunch that we had was really, really nice. And I'm looking forward to having more experiences like that when schools reopen because we were supposed to this time next week I was supposed to be in Newcastle at a school with my first bunch of girls to run our first workshop you know in a lot of ways we sort of have this added element to our relationship that's kind of like business partners as well which is weird because <laughs> Keely's always said she feels like she has three parents me as the third parent in her life even though I'm only less than two years older than her so we're like 23 months apart Weirdly, and I think this is purely because she's a lot taller than me, people always think she's older. And I'm like, look at her. She looks 12. And then people go to me, you look 12. So I definitely got older sister vibes from you, 100%. I am an older sister as well. Yeah, it's a really beautiful thing. It used to be a point of tension between us. With maturity, you learn this. But again, as that very angry 18, 19-year-old that I was, I was kind of like, you know, we need to do this and we need to be out there and be angry and yell and blah, blah, blah. And I've become someone who's not as much like that. And I think she's helped me pull back and be more succinct and level-headed in how I communicate things. And I've helped her find her voice so in certain situations, she's been able to go, oh, hang on, that's not right. Whereas in the past, she had a boss once say something really racist in her workplace about Aboriginal people and he didn't know that she was Aboriginal because she'd never talked about it and she didn't say anything about it. And at the time, my reaction to that was like, why didn't you say something? And she got upset and now I realise that that was really awful for her and she was actually scared about keeping a job. That's why she didn't say anything. And now she's been in similar situations where she'll go, actually, I'm really offended by that because I'm Aboriginal and I'm very proud of it. I mean, it's crazy that we have to navigate that, but like, I'm really glad that we've both grown to act differently in those situations. So hearing about how two women have been able to teach each other how to deal with these really uncomfortable situations and how to deal with that rage and that feeling of helplessness that comes with it has been really interesting to me when I think about my own life. So climate change is something that I'm hugely passionate about and work in and I am an activist against. That is something I feel rage about and helpless about all the time, all the time. And yet I 
have decided to make it part of my life's work to go out and try and raise awareness and change policy and to move forward into a more sustainable future. It's so beautiful to hear about a relationship where women supporting women can look this is uncomfortable, this makes you angry, this makes you feel helpless, and you can't necessarily change that, you can't necessarily get rid of the helplessness, get rid of the rage, because, you know, you have to to solve the situation first, and sometimes things aren't solvable. But sometimes it's just one other person's perspectives that can click the switch and make it go from, okay, this is overwhelming me and stopping me from doing things, to, oh no, I can be productive in my life and still feel this sense of whatever it is that's churning through you. And it brought to mind um, someone who was a mentor to me, Katerina Gator, who runs Climate for Change, who I volunteered with in 2018. She's an incredible woman who, um, I had so many discussions with her about how emotional it is to be in a climate space when you feel feel so afraid all the time of the consequences of inaction and the consequences that we may have caused already. And she taught me so much about how to use that to then drive yourself forward rather than allowing it to overwhelm you and stop you and how optimism and hope can be such huge forces in your life while still acknowledging the fact that, you know, you're a small drop in an ocean. She was so incredible to me and it's so nice to hear about another relationship where that's happening. Because I think, you know, I'm never going to get rid of the fear that I have around this issue, but it's driven me to write songs that I love and to work in an industry that I love and to go out and hold signs when I need to and meet some really incredible people. And that's so powerful that a relationship has changed me in that way and allowed me to be productive and move forward. That's such a lovely reflection. I love hearing that so much. And I think you can kind of see that journey in the relationship that Molly spoke about with one of her mentors in her career and then also with her sister as well, how a person kind of is able to like shepherd you on this journey towards change and to towards taking the parts of yourself that really react emotionally and channel them into still reacting emotionally but with maybe taking a breath beforehand so many t-shirts and inspirational quotes around this you know be the change you want to see in the world and sometimes you can't be you know sometimes you don't have the time money or inclination to go out and change the world that way because you know life and other things and health and it can take just one person saying it's okay think of it this way or saying you know take a breath like you just said then or giving you a strategy when you're faced with someone who is treating you a certain way or supporting you just being sympathetic in a moment of feeling whatever it is you feel you know there are so many different ways that people can support each other in that is really powerful regardless of how much change you can actually go out and make I think that, you know, when you're really rageful or when you are really fearful or just helpless and scared and you kind of sit with that emotion for quite a while, I think for a lot of like exhaustion and burnout happens as well. And I think one of the things that ties so many of the stories of the women that we speak to is how they've had people who have championed their passions and their skills and kind of like being able to connect with them when they're sitting in that uncomfortable space which is an interesting and simple reflection isn't it the power of connection and I think particularly in the times that we live in now it's so hard to see or to have faith in like your community or the people who are who are leading and I think 
when you hear stories like what Marley spoke about with her sister and her mentor, those give me little slivers of hope, you know? I know I will have had some of those moments in my life too, but I have a dreadful memory, so I cannot think of them off the top of my head. But that's a lovely thing for me to sit down and reflect on, you know, is to try and look at people and women who've kind of brought me back up when I've just been close to being, you know, really exhausted because of the things that I'm passionate about. It's interesting to hear how that kind of trauma manifests differently for different people. It sounds like you really like turned to rage and then maybe from rage, you know, came upon this wonderful platform that you've built. But are you still working through that a bit? Could you speak to that journey a little bit? I think sadly a bit of what's helped with moving on from the rage is exhaustion because you just can't keep up just being so angry all the time because if you let it consume you you're not productive and you're just kind of screaming into the wilderness and you know as much as Keely's been a really big help with realizing that that's not a healthy way to go through things I've also been you know had the honor of being mentored by some really amazing Aboriginal people who have showed me better ways to work through the rage and turn it into productivity and turn it into hard work. And particularly my most recent boss um, is an Aboriginal woman. Her name's Yatu Widders Hunt. She runs an Instagram page too. It's called Oz Indigenous Fashion. Great place if you want to go and empty your bank account. <laughs> she was my boss when I was a consultant for an Indigenous communications agency. And she's so quiet and sweet. And I've seen her keep her cool in situations you know rooms with like really uncomfortable awful situations and her ability to do that was so incredible feels weird to talk about because I think as women we are constantly afraid of being loud because it kind of puts us in this position of a angry bossy hard to manage woman right but there is some power in having that control because I'm a very emotional person and so in a lot of situations my emotions overwhelm me and I then can't communicate what I want to communicate and then it just becomes this big blech and watching her ability to absorb, synthesize and then come back with a solution or a cutthroat thing just to get through it, that's been amazing to me. I don't know, I think I'm really focused on trying to bring people in now in the past I was very much like keeping people out and this is like around the ways we talk about stuff in our community January 26 the flag the anthem that sort of stuff I would be like now nah, piss off all you white people you know I, I don't want you to be a part of this I'm too angry at you you're the problem girl even though my mother's white sorry mum <laughs> and now I've been able to go hang on a big majority of the Australian population are fence sitters and they just like are too worried about themselves to think about anything else. So there's a way to pull them onto our side of the fence and be an ally with us when you're not going, I hate you guys, even though I don't know you, I hate you. Like, because that's just as bad. I'm now able to go, hey, let's have a conversation and like, let's figure out a way to talk about this where it doesn't feel like you're having anything taken from you. And you can be a part of this and like we can get through it together. I mean, there's definitely times where I'm like, oh my God, I am do not have to teach every person ever about this. Like go and do your own education and also like you need to meet me halfway. But I have dropped my own ego to be able to have 
better, more productive conversations and build better relationships and, and that sort of stuff. I've watched other people do that and that's really been a great benefit for me, you know, particularly older Aboriginal people who've been fighting a long time. They're the ones who kind of go, manage your energy levels because you're doing this for the rest of your life. There's no time when you retire from being an Aboriginal person. There's still plenty of angry tears that happen, but my ability to navigate them is just getting better. It's also with practice. But then you throw the spanner in the works of having a page that has over 30,000 followers and suddenly people are recognising you and then sending you heaps more messages. It is harder at the moment than it was 12 months ago. Yeah, just taking your time and uh, like, especially because I was on I was on Q&A. I know. I saw that. That was so incredible. You were all the things that you just spoke about, like considered and calm and articulate. It was great. I've never been so scared in my life. I do public speaking all the time. That's my thing. That's my jam. Not a big fan of live TV, but I was like, that bit, not scary. Coming off the stage and like getting to my phone and pulling up Twitter and then what people were going to say, I was so, 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 so scared that I was just going to have this like disgusting racist vitriol. She's not black. She's this. Like I was just like waiting for all that. And I don't know if the algorithm on Twitter has just got better at filtering out the racism before it gets to you, but I didn't get it. I got like three messages of just like blatant racism over the last month in my like Insta DMs. But I get them all the time. So it wasn't this massive influx, but they were just ones that specifically mentioned Q&A. I was like, you know what? I am very happy with this situation. This is not as bad as I thought. I thought I was going to have to like be really vigilant and (laughs) I like turned my Facebook off so like no one can find me on Facebook and like did all this other stuff and I was just like, I'm just, I just am scared about it. And then it was fine. Well, I mean, the one time that social media didn't turn out to be a, you know, pile of hate, I'm glad. (laughs) So I also wanted to ask, so you call yourself a storyteller and a writer, and I wanted to know what types of stories you think we should be hearing about Indigenous women. Like, what do you think is currently missing in the way that we celebrate Indigenous women and what they're doing? I think there is a a huge trend and a very damaging trend of Indigenous stories overall, but specifically Indigenous women's stories, that comes from a language of deficit, that inherent experience of Indigenous people is a negative one and that it's, you know, Indigenous women are just victims and statistics and, you know, really harrowing, heartbreaking stories, which that is very much undeniably a part of the experience of Indigenous women, but that's the experience at some portion of all women's experiences or women's groups, there is that element that is exposed to domestic violence and drug and alcohol abuse and incarceration rates. And ours are higher, yes. It's not because we're Indigenous women that those statistics are like that. It's because of the way that Indigenous women are treated and the socioeconomic standards of Indigenous Australia that we are more susceptible to those things. But to be an Indigenous woman is to be such a powerful, incredible, resilient human being just find that that story is missed a lot in mainstream media if you're hearing about an Aboriginal woman in mainstream I feel a lot of the time she's a victim of a crime which is horrific and breaks my heart that there are so many of our women who go missing or are murdered and actually don't get enough attention or are the victims of domestic violence or end up in jail or end up being murdered at the hands of police or something like that that's not the only story though There are far more women who are doing their PhDs while they raise three kids on their own 
or specialists in a medical field or have just finished their medical degree to go take it back to East Arnhem Land to fix the rheumatic heart disease problem in their community. And there's so many incredible educators, actually, poets and actors and singers and lawyers and everything, you know, like, and I have all these stories up here because I read about them every day and I get to talk to these women all the time. And I'm so privileged to be able to do that. And they're the ones I want to talk about all the time because we need that balance. Yes, we need attention to the women who need it because they're suffering and need it because they're overrepresented in these really, really awful categories. But we also need to go, oh, look at this amazing woman. I know that I live in a bubble and I know that all the people I'm around, whether they're Indigenous or not, know a lot more of the happy stories that I do, partly because I shout them at them. <laughs> but there is this big chunk of our population who who don't know who these amazing women are, don't know what's going on. Like, you know, it's amazing now that we can turn on our Channel 9 in the morning and see Brooke Boney. I talk about her a lot because I want to emphasize how incredible that is, like to turn on mainstream television, see Brooke Boney, who's not just a great entertainment reporter, but she's like an amazing human. Then to flick over to Channel 10, you see Narelda Jacob, who is a gay Aboriginal woman who's on Channel 10. Incredible. The one time I saw an Aboriginal woman on TV when I was a child was when she won gold in the Sydney Olympics, which is like a, such a one-off thing. You know, it doesn't happen very often and it's so amazing. It still remains to mean so much to me because when you're five years old, like you just absorb everything. But now my little cousins get to turn on the TV and see that every day. Representation, sometimes like people get bored of that topic because there's only so much representation can do because it needs to be followed up with you know actual practical steps that create more pathways and things like that. But there is an incredible weight to it and a, a really amazing thing. That sort of stuff is so exciting and that's, I think, helping us kind of balance out the sorts of stories that are coming through. Hearing Marley speak about the power of representation made me remember and reflect on the power of the goddess that is Lizzo and what a profound impact she has had on my life. I feel like I'm a scholar in Lizzo and I'm presenting my thesis on how incredible she is. I mean, I could just talk at length, but I'm not going to. I'm going to get to the point, which is that it has changed my life so much to see a plus-size woman as a pop star and as a really successful mainstream pop star and on my really bad days where I don't feel like liking my body if I put on a Lizzo song it's like a 10 out of 10 guarantee that I will feel better after that Lizzo song and that is crazy to me because I've never found anything else that's like a surefire way to make me love myself so I mean spread the word around because it's really worked wonders for me and I thought I would just share that with you. <laughs> it covers so many different aspects of so many different people's lives. For me, okay, so recently I found a hard drive from, I think it was 2010 or something. So a good 10 years ago. That was still when I was still figuring things out. And I found a folder on that hard drive 
that was full of movies and TV shows that had queer storylines, queer characters. This folder was labeled in a way that you would not know what it is. It was within two other folders or something as if I was scared that someone was gonna find my hard drive and look through it. It kind of made me think about how important, well, films and TV shows were for me back then because every other mainstream kind of show had people who were, you know, going through issues because they were gay or, you know, it was a side character or it was, you know, the gay sassy best friend or something like that. No one was me. There was no one who was going through the same things that I was. And seeing these films gave me a chance to feel normal and feel accepted and feel like it wasn't the end of my life <laughs> or something that I had to be ashamed of forever. I think that's beautiful and that was the power of representation. It's huge. It covers so many different things. I think until you actually see yourself represented in someone who's on TV or in a film or, you know, a pop star, it's hard to gauge that power as well, the power that that moment can have in your life. And, you know, whether it be through obsessively watching gay people fall in love, at least once a week, I have like a dance party to Lizzo in the shower and like honour the fact that I am a plus size woman who is beautiful. Those are moments that are that are just key, aren't they? And they're so lovely to reflect on. This is the world we live in. Our films and television should represent the world we live in, the people who are in it, and show a diverse cast of people with good guys, evil guys, the villains are anyone, the protagonists are everyone. We can relate to people because we are all of humanity. Wow, that was a very diplomatic overarching statement I mean absolutely that is the center of it right it's so powerful but then also when you talk about this kind of thing as well it needs to be followed up with action because I think representation has become a really comfortable topic for a lot of white people to rest upon as you know change instead of actually following that up with like policies and more structural change that is like sustainable and actually has longer term impacts for people of color. I totally understand what you're saying because, you know, if we're presenting something as this idyllic version of the world, we have to make sure we're also putting steps in place to make sure that is what's happening, you know, rather than just going, we all think this, so we don't have to talk about it anymore. We have to actually go out and make that change rather than saying, well, I saw a whole heap of people who weren't like me on the TV the other day. Good. You know, we have to say, no, I'm going to seek out that stuff. I'm going to put my money where my mouth is, go out and seek things that I wouldn't normally see. I'm going to put my foot down and use the power that I have to actually go and, you know, change this. <laughs> we can't just wait for representation to happen. It's twofold, right? It's being understanding it, the transformative power, but then also understanding that, you know, just because the USA had Obama as president doesn't mean that it's not one of the most racist countries in the world. We haven't solved racism or fat phobia just because we have a pop star like Lizzo. Like, I think people rest easy on that topic a lot of the time and they don't like interrogate why when they talk about race and gender the only thing they talk about is representation. It's a starting point and it's a reminder and if we don't realize that it is a reminder not you know the end of the road we're not going to make the change that we need to make for real. What 
do you think the role of white people is in in promoting Indigenous excellence? Like, how do we hold ourselves accountable to do that? I think it starts with the fact that if you are a person who lives in Australia, you live on Aboriginal land, no matter where you are, or unless you live in the Torres Strait Islands, then you live on Torres Strait Islander land, and lucky you, beautiful part of the world to live in. And you have to take responsibility in learning about the country that you're on. I think that's where we all start because Aboriginal culture and being is so intertwined with country and especially because of the, the fire season we just saw, there was this big influx about talking about going back to Aboriginal ways of managing fire, which is great and I think a really positive direction to move into, but it needs to be accompanied then by the everyday person understanding the country that they're on and building a love for it, a respect, um, a deeper understanding of what it means and why it's important to protect it. And that extends then to the stories and the songlines and the lineage that actually exists in the soil and is connected to Aboriginal people as well. It's kind of like a complex and seems like a really, I don't know, non-tangible thing. I think in, from a Western context, you kind of look at that and you're like, how does that have anything to do with like socially how we interact with Aboriginal people? But that's part of it. From an Indigenous knowledge perspective, you can't separate that like that's why we were able to look after it so well for 80,000 years is because it is us and we are it and we don't own the land the land owns us and it owns our stories and that sort of stuff that's where non-indigenous Australia needs to start in terms of the role of the average person in celebrating indigenous excellence I think we all black white whatever need to be reflective on ourselves, our own context and our own privilege and learn how we can step out of the way, make space for people who aren't present in certain situations, people who have been ignored or um, not had as much opportunity to express their voice and things like that. And as a part of that, you need to make safe spaces for Indigenous people to be in. I find that there's probably a big chunk of non-Indigenous Australia who never interact with Aboriginal people, which seems pretty wild. Like you need to ask yourself, like, why is that the case? And when you're in certain situations, when Aboriginal Australia is being spoken about, like you need to recognise if there's no one there from our community to talk for us. Because I think that there are plenty of rooms, plenty of barbecues, whatever, particularly around the beginning of the year, where people are talking about Aboriginal Australia or an Aboriginal role model or famous person and people forget to go well hang on there's no black fella here to talk about it you know what right do we have to talk about it and maybe we're forgetting particular perspectives and do we have the right to talk about these things do these things really concern us or are they a space for aboriginal people to have their voices heard and that sort of stuff just being really critical and like aware of this sort of stuff and aware of where we're absent i think also it's about like learning more about our culture and like loving it and respecting it and Having it be some small part of your own identity as an Australian. You know, on that Q&A episode, we were talking about Australian identity that I was on and there is no definitive answer of what it means to be an Australian in this country. We've never been able to answer that and I think we need to be able to build one together and you can't have an Australian identity without the founding culture of the country playing some part in it. And our culture is so incredible. Like, it's what we've done is unbelievable like we always say we're the oldest continuous surviving culture on earth and then people hear that and they kind of go yeah yeah and I'm like no 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 we're it we're the oldest no one else you go to Bree Warren you see the oldest man-made structure in the world the oldest the, the oldest one that's so cool like if you feel proud to be an Australian right what you should be proud of is that as well as the other things 
why is our longevity and our resilience not held at the same regard as the ANZAC spirit? That really blows my mind. Of course, yeah. Oh, that was such a good answer. So bad behavior, we talk a lot about feminism and we're all about celebrating women as well. But I know that sometimes, well, a lot of the time, the feminist movement can be quite othering to women of color and it's quite white-centered and heteronormative. And coming out with this wonderful platform and your podcast and your book, do you kind of feel embraced by feminism? Like, do you identify as a feminist? Do you know what's so weird is that I have become, like, weirdly, ironically, whatever, have become less comfortable with the label of feminist. 18 months ago, you go, are you a feminist? I'm like, hell yeah, I'm a feminist. Let's talk about the patriarchy. Boom. Like, And it's not that I no longer believe in the goals of feminism, because that would be ridiculous, but I don't know if our story, like feminism is an ideology that is based off white women reclaiming power off white men and we've never deconstructed that and like yeah we talk about intersectional feminism whatever we're not quite there yet I don't want to discredit feminism and don't want to not be a part of it but I think that we need to level up from here to International Women's Day this year there was like a lot of stuff I came out of kind of going oh my god I feel like I wasn't supposed to be there and I feel like we're talking about wage gaps and how many women there are in boardrooms and stuff which is like yeah like we need more of that but my women in my community need to think more about you know reducing the levels of domestic violence and not being locked up for unpaid fines and and things like that like that's a higher priority you know and we know that race trumps gender in these discussions but the best event that I went to was called We Are the Mainstream. It was held in Western Sydney for inaugural event run by some Southeast Asian women, but they had like all women of color represented there and they were the best conversations that I've had. And we didn't mention feminism once because we were talking about our experiences as women of color and the sorts of things that matter to us. And it was that whole thing that race trumps gender and being truly intersectional. My number one thing that I've been doing, which is actually regressing into what I used to do um, around hectic times at uni, is procrastinate baking so much. Like, it's absurd. And I made the best brownies I've ever made in my life the other day. It was a big win. But my aside from that, and maybe to balance it out a little bit, I have been exercising every single day which I do in my normal life anyway but just being really on top of it and like moving and that's not necessarily you know going out and running 10 kilometers it's like sometimes just I bought a bike on Gumtree and I've just been like go for a bike ride and sit outside and not do anything just sit outside and just move and also don't feel guilty for not being super productive because I feel like there was this weird instantly it was like Shakespeare Shakespeare wrote King Lear in uh, isolation so that's the kind of level we need to be operating at no we don't this is scary because I don't think the world is ever going to be the same after coming out of we're allowed to be like hey I'm scared I need to just re-watch Friends again I'm back living with my two sisters for the first time in a long time and one of them is definitely deep into the the baking phase which I just love this has been so lovely thank you so much for chatting to us
We had such an incredible time talking to Marley. It was so wonderful to hear about her reflections of starting such an incredible platform like Titters for Titters and working with her sister and the importance of understanding the stolen land that we live on in Australia and also acknowledging that as Australians, a central part of our identity means centering the founding part of this country. Rosalind and I are both recording remotely right now and we thought we would end this episode with acknowledging the traditional owners of the land that we're recording on. So I'm on the land of the Wadawurrung people of the Kulin Nation and the clans either belong to the Wa the crow or the bunjil, the eagle hawk. So I'm recording from Melbourne, which is on the land of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. They take their name from the Woiwurrung language. Wurrung means kind of eucalypt, which is common along the Birrawung, the Yarra River. And they have been here for a very, very long time, 80,000 years or more. And the information that we just shared about understanding the Indigenous land that we all live on is really readily available for anyone who wants to further understand the stories and the history about the different parts of Australia that they live in. So we're going to include resources to have a look at and we really would recommend doing that. Thank you so much again to Marley for chatting to us and we'll see you next episode. Loving bad behavior? Join our Patreon page. You'll get access to bonus episodes, juicy behind-the-scenes content, live Q&As, and much more. We'll see you there. We all misbehave sometimes. Wanna change the world, indulge in some bad.